I'm a man on fire Walking through your street With one guitar And two dancing feet Only one desire That's left in me On the whole damn world To come dance with me Welcome back to the show. Today's episode is part two with Billy Hamilton. In part one, we discussed Billy's early travels to Kauai in the 60s, meeting a toddler-aged Laird on the beach at Rocky Point, and then shortly thereafter, wooing his mother. He also told us about surfing pipeline naked in the middle of the night and living with Bunker Spreckles when he inherited $100 million. So um, we actually covered a ton of ground in that episode. And today we cover a whole lot more. Bill is fantastic. He's actually lived a very, very interesting life and uh, does a fantastic job communicating it. So thrilled to be able to close out this Kauai series with Bill. He's actually still building boards on Kauai. So you can find him on Instagram at Bill Hamilton Surf where uh, you can and you should order a surfboard from him. I often think about um, how many kind of early pioneering icons are actually still around and still building boards, from Dick Brewer to Jerry Lopez, and um, you can still order boards from them, and I think that'll be something that future generations wish that they had the opportunity to do. So. Bill Hamilton Surf is his Instagram handle. I've linked to all of Bill's stuff, uh, including footage of him surfing, footage of him in Big Wednesday, the film, all on surfsplendorpodcast.com. We also have a comment section there, so you can leave a comment for Bill, and then I will ensure that he sees that. And without further ado, my name is, of course, David Scales for Surf Splendor, and here is part two of my conversation with Bill Hamilton. Enjoy. So you bring the family to Kauai. How did you plan to make a living? Um, well, I had been, at that point in time, I'm starting to make, I'm doing pretty well shaping surfboards. On Kauai? On, on, no, on Oahu. On Oahu. So um, what I would do is like every two months, I would go to Oahu and shape. I live out on the North Shore, a friend's house. I get a, a number of orders at, in advance, and then I'd shape, and I'd get my money and come back. We'd live off that money for a while. Got it. Joanne worked a little bit as a secretary and a waitress here and there, but um, my early teaching, I, 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 when I first moved to Oahu, I had to work construction because I had a wife and child that I had to support and no money coming in except John, John Price, what he was paying us. And the rents were a little bit higher, but not by much. And you know, you had your car, all that stuff. It all piles up. So 
I started working construction at Mililani Town. Mililani Town was just a pineapple pasture in those days, so we were breaking ground. And I was uh, the only Howley on a 15-man local crew of Japanese, Filipinos, and a Samoan. Hmm. And so I got to see a little bit of that prejudice within that framework. Um, but I learned some skills, you know. I learned some construction skills. So when I came to Kauai uh, and they started building Princeville, I was one of the early workers, you know, one of the early labor force carpenters. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, how was the environment for Laird and Lyon raising? Obviously, you're a, you told Joanne, we're going to go raise the kids in the country. How did that pan out for you? Was it a good? Well, it was, you know, I don't know how to put this succinctly, but um, we were young and we were flexible and we're open-minded um, and it was something that was part of the environment. It was part of our, our living environment and we, we weren't repelled by it. We, we kind of like eventually fit into the community, you know. But it was a testing situation, and I think way more for the kids than it was for me. Because they're in school with... Yeah, and I I was, when I went there, I was well known in Hawaii as a surfer. I had already established a, a fairly big name in surfing. So a lot of guys that even were non-surfers knew who I was. And I lived in a place, like I lived at Joy Cabell's house that he had built, um, in the 1968, he built a house there. So I got to stay there for six months, rent-free while I could find a place for us to live. And eventually, I found a place right in the, right off the main road in Wainia. And my landlord's name was Henry Ty Hook. And he happened to be like the unofficial mayor of Kauai. Okay. So, and I was his friend. So I was kind of sewn in, in the sense that you really don't, you know, you don't mess around with friends of Taiho kind of thing. Got it. And um, I, I can't say that I was protected because I had a few situations where I had to defend myself, you know. Uh, I had a few instances where guys wanted to cold cock me and I caught them before they cold cocked me. Was that surfing related? No, it was on the land, you know, mostly guys that were hunters. And, and then... Um, and then when they, in Wainia, they have a, we used to, to bring the nets off the beach. And um, it's called a hukilau net. So we'd surround big piles of akuli in the bay there. And it would be a, a village event, right? Every per person that lived in, the, in that small village went and helped at the beach, right? At the end of the, bringing all the fish in, everybody got their share of fish. And it was very Hawaiian. And it was very... It doesn't exist like that today, not as consistently as it used to, you know. So so my job was to go out, when they pulled the net in, it'd be down at about 12 or 15 feet of water, and it would, it would hook up on boulders and stuff. So I'd have to dive down and release the bottom of the net, which was, had lead on it. And a number of times there would be big sharks inside the net. And none of the locals wanted to be involved in that job, but I was the one that did it. And I go down, and they go, Hamilton, big shark inside. I go down, and I go, 
yeah, there used to be a big shark. There's a three-foot hole in this net. <laughs> and I'd, have, I'd have to sew the net up, you know. Amazing. So, um, so in a way, you had to you had to earn your respect, you know, and uh, and you could you had to be fearless in a way. You had you couldn't you couldn't show any kind of intimidation, being intimidated. Right. So those guys, they kind of knew that if they got involved with me, one of them was going to get hurt. I might have, I said, I always, whenever I got in a confrontation, I go, you guys want it? You want a piece of me? I'll tell you what, I'll take, I'll take all three of you guys on, but one of you guys is going to go to the hospital. I fucking promise you. And it seemed to like calm down a little bit, but I was, I never backed down. Yeah. So. Did you, how did you feel about educational and economic opportunities for Laird and Lyon? Um, the school, they had a one-on-one -on -one kind of a situation in, in the elementary school that I liked. Kapaha High School was a nightmare. Kapaha High School was the worst, you know, I mean, it was like, what's the option? Well, we could send them to private school, but they didn't have private school here then. They started having private schools when Laird was like, a sophomore thing, but he quit when he was uh, in 10th grade. He quit school when he was in 10th grade, with my blessing. He was, I drove him, was driving him back from the hospital. He's got a left hand, he's got a boxer's fracture in his left hand, he'd hit somebody. He goes, Dad, all I do is fight in that school, I'm not learning anything. I said, and this is when he and his, his mom and I were, were divorced, and he was living with a guy who was a contractor, uh, and a good one too, Sam, and I go, well, I'll tell you what, if you want to quit school, you're going to have to learn something. and You're going to have to learn a skill. And Sam has all those skills. You're going to have to go to work for Sam, and that's going to be your schooling. You'll learn a trade. You can learn how to be a carpenter with him. And that's what he did. Really? And he became very skillful. There's built four houses on his own, though. Very wow. good at it. Wow. Yeah. Um, it didn't take long, though, for him to kind of the the bigger, larger world to come chasing him, though, right? For modeling and for surfing and for... Well, he, you know, Laird, Laird had a vision that he, he had when he was a little boy, you know. <clears throat> he, had much, he had a much bigger scope on life than I could even imagine. Right. He wanted way more than what I... I mean, he saw what I was involved in. He liked what I... The fame that I had. I mean, he used to go, you know who my dad is. And he was very aware of that, but he wanted more than that. Yeah. He wanted to be the very best of all of it. Right. You know? He wanted the king-sized version of what I was doing. And he got it. And he got and, it. And I mean, it came pretty quick and early, right? Well, he, you know, like I, I he's got a, he's an anachronism of nature. He's got, he's, he's got the courage of, He's got that one in a million people courage that people, you know, admire. Um, and he's got the, probably the mathematical brilliance of, of harnessing that courage. Those two aspects alone. But then he's got the energy of three people inside of him. So this makes him more or less like a superhero. Yeah. And... Um, and he's capitalized on that, and he's used that. He's used those abilities every day of his life. He hasn't let up. No. I mean, the guy is just, he's like, I, I refer to him as a meteorite. He's got flames and sparks coming off of him. He's just on fire. Have you ever been scared for him, for his life? 
I mean, the situations that we see him in are life-threatening for anybody else. You have to, well, have to have been. You scared. know, when he was four years old, he'd come out the pipeline on those rafts when it was like eight feet. And I'd be like, oh, my God. I would go, oh, I don't want to even deal with this, you know. If I have to save him in an eight-foot dead pipeline, this is not a good event. So I'd get pissed at him, you know. Get out of here. Do not come out of here. I was, I was the, I was more than my own dad was to me in the sense that I had a, I had a child that was testing every single adult he ever met. He had absolutely no respect for people. And I was trying to kind of shape this rough piece of wood into somebody who was, had a little bit of humility and a little bit of civil respect. You know, and it was like, it was a long road for me and him because yeah. he was constantly testing me. And I was going, look, you can't go any further than this. You just can't. And um, So you're constantly scared is kind of the, yeah, the answer and, to the and question. You know, there's a saying that you can't, um, you can't have somebody obey you through words alone, you know. Right. And my parents taught me that. My mom had a bamboo switch that was four feet long and whistled and sang before it hit my ass. And believe me, I'd much rather get whipped by my dad's belt than my mom's bamboo switch. So I was the guy with the belt. I'd bring the belt out. And both my kids, Lyon, not so much because he was kind of an easy, he compared to Laird, he was, he was a normal child. But yeah, Laird, Laird got disciplined from me, but I also saw my, in growing up with my father and him having a stepson, in my older brother Gordon, who was three years old when he met my mom and adopted him, he, there was some cruelty involved in that, and there was no love. And so I decided I was going to make it a better thing for Laird. But I see stuff on YouTube where Laird, I think I might have traumatized him a little <laughs> bit. And I didn't really mean to, but it was just part of it happens. Upbringing, you yeah, know? totally. And I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm from the old school. You know, my parents taught me. Look, Laird did not come with an instruction book. And I had no idea being a new father to this game. What am I going to do? Well, I had to rely on my parents' teachings, yeah. right? That's what you do. Totally. So, um, In regard to the larger world kind of coming to get Laird and capitalize on you and your talent and celebrity and all that sort of stuff, uh, tell me about working with John Milius and how that Big Wednesday thing approached you. And well. Well, what was the opportunity? Once again, um, John Millis and uh, Denny Albert. Denny Albert wrote the script. Um, They're going to make a a film about a Hollywood film about Malibu and that period of time when Malibu had all those characters, you know, Lance Carson and Tube Steak and before Gidget kind of thing, you know. Uh, so. It was a Warner Brothers production. It was a $10 million budget film. And they hired Greg McGilvery and Jim Freeman to do all the all the water work. So I had, you know, been working with Greg and Jim for a long time. I already made a couple of movies. We'd gone to Europe already in 1968, went to France, discovered Osegore, um, surfed all kinds of beautiful spots over there, Portugal. Discovered Nazare, never been discovered before. So I got discovered Nazare and, and Hosegor with 
McGilvery, on, it's all on film. And then, because we worked well together, they hired me. And then Milius said he wanted, he didn't want to doubles for the actors. He wanted to, you know, he wanted, so I got taken up to Hollywood to play the main part of, um, you know, Jan Michael Benson's eventual part. Well, I'm not an actor, right? So, and they say, oh, you did good, good great job. We'll, we'll give you a call, right? Oh, okay. <laughs> I knew right then we'll give you a call. It wasn't going to happen. So eventually they figured they are going to have to have real actors, money, you know, market draw people. And But did you, I mean, at that time, you're flying to Hollywood. Did you think you're going to be a millionaire and your life's going to change and you're going to, or was it just, I'll go do this and I'll come back home to Kauai and... Yeah, I wasn't, you know, um, uh, you have to understand that for me, money was, became a byproduct of the, of the things that I was interested in. I wasn't pursuing money for the sake of money. You understand that? I do, but presented with that opportunity, you could start having crazy thoughts. Um, yeah, but I wasn't, you know. I know what I am inside. I mean, I was I I must prefer to be the stunt guy than the, the actor, you know. And I did a, a couple of stunts while I was in that business. But, gotcha. Um, but the thing was, is that um, I um, when the producer at the end of the film said, "Bill, would you like to use the bear logo for a line of surfboards for yourself?" I said, "Yeah." I said, "I said." But I don't want to get into trouble with Warner Brothers. He goes, um, I don't think Warner Brothers is going to do anything with this film. They might even sell it. And this is before, uh, this is right during the making of Star Wars. Uh, Spielberg, uh, Lucas with Star Wars and Spielberg with um, Jaws. So this is before the marketing of stuff out of films, right? Star Wars became a multi, multi-million dollar project with selling Star Wars paraphernalia. So um, they go, you know, just go ahead and use it. We've already given permission to four other people to use this thing. We're, we're not going to do anything with it. So I just ran with it. So I created a line of surfboards with a bear logo on it. I started selling t-shirts. Um, Milius came over, I gave him, you know, a surfboard with a bear logo on it, shirts, he put me in one of his movies, Uncommon Valor, you know, I did a stunt and that, and then, uh, and then the, a, a group of guys from, uh, they were, they were uh, screen printers from, there was uh, printing LA gear and Adidas uh, t-shirts, and they wanted a surf line, so they came to me and said, we want to use the bear line. So I licensed out the bear line. I went through all the whole process of getting a, a, a trademark in the United States. And I was getting trademarks in Europe and trademarks in Australia. And running into problems in Australia because somebody had already registered the mark. So the bear label was not a clean label in the sense that it had, I had to kind of wash it up legally. So our first trade show when the clothing lines weren't doing very well, and this is when Stussy was doing really big, Massimo was just the very beginning of Massimo. Uh, we, we put out the bear line, the bear line turned out to be a big hit. So we started out with zero, that year we got $3 million in orders. Big hit. Next year, 
$7 million. Third year, we're a $12 million company. I'm making $150,000 a month in royalties because I'm getting 2% of the gross. And the reason why our stuff was so popular is that those guys in LA had an air, airplane factory hangar with buffet tables lined up wall to wall. And so in clothing, in fashion, usually in six, six months in advance, what they do is they choose their roll stock so they can produce their line, right? So all these companies had to, in advance, figure out what their lines were gonna be. Or we, we could change our line daily. And that's what we had, that's our edge on the marketplace. And it really, it was, it was going big. And so we started, I started getting into license. Uh, I was with Jake Burton uh, in a little room with Jake, going, Jake, I said, you're just getting, starting to get big in the snowboarding thing. I said, how would you like to make a bear snowboard? He goes, God, I'd love to do that. I said, we're just starting to make bodies and uh, equipment and stuff for the, for the mountains and the bear lends itself really well to it. And uh, you know, this is like the beginning of the snowboard thing. So our company was just starting to go ballistic. And then we ran into a problem with a, the trademark in Europe. And the lawyers were telling me that we need a copyright. Your, your trademark, your US trademark's not powerful enough. And I said, I don't know about copyright. I only know about trademark. So I took it to a lawyer and he researched. He said, well, yeah, there's the artist's rendition of the bear in the middle is copyrightable. And that copyrightable was obtained by somebody. And I said, Ma, it's probably from Warner Brothers. So I went to, to Milius and I go, Milius, I go, you know, the bear, our bear company's doing really well. And I think it could do a lot better if you can help me and I'll bring you in as a partner. I said, what I need is the, the copyright for the Bear logo. I don't know if the artist has it or if Warner Brothers has it. I suspect Warner Brothers has it. And maybe we can make Big Wednesday number two and really jack this thing up into the universe. And I'm starting to think about making a lot of money now, right? So he calls down to my, he sends one of his agents out and they go down to the factory and they see what's up and and all of a sudden his eyes went green and he got greedy he called up my partners and he said don't do business with Hamilton anymore do business with me this is my deal he says I own the copyright so he got a quick claim deed from from uh, Warner Brothers for five grand got the quick claim deed for the copyright I offered him 50 no I don't want any part of it it's, it's like so I get on a plane, I fly to Hollywood, I fly to Paramount Studios. I go in, I have a meeting with John, I go in, I go, John, what, what's this all about? He goes, sit the fuck down, this is my deal, like, a, like some kind of a gangster. I said, me? Sit the fuck down? I said, John. This has been my deal for the last four years. I said, you haven't done anything to contribute to it. I've asked you to come in. I'm inviting you into my deal. I said, I don't think that we're, I don't think we're seeing something straight here. I said, if I got to see in court, I'll see in court. And so I turn around as I'm walking out, his, his bodyguard comes up from behind me and punches me in the back of the head. What? And I have a voice-activated tape recorder in my shirt. 
and the door breaks off its hinges. I go sailing into another room. He's got me by the, my jacket, my shoulder, and he's rabbit punching me in the back of the head. I remember taking out a fax machine and a pretty little secretary that landed on the floor over to another table, another fax machine, and another secretary that sent up screaming. I turn around and I grab the guy by the, you know, right by the underneath his throat, and I throw him against the wall, and I'm ready to give him the final cut. And I'm thinking in my mind, going, Hamilton, don't do this, don't do this. This is a lawsuit. Don't do this, don't do this. And I just kind of just, I just dropped everything. And right about then, Milius comes in the office, and goes, "What the hell's going on here?" I go, "You know exactly what the hell's going on here, and I think you owe me an apology." He goes, crosses his arms. He says, I don't think I'm prepared to apologize. I said, fuck you guys. So I walk out the door. And then his agent, I'm not going to name the agent. He's, uh, I'm in the car. He comes up and goes, Billy, 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 we're really sorry. We're really sorry. Come back inside. I said, I said, you know what? You're a local boy. You're from Hawaii, right? He goes, I said, you've been here way too long. I said, I'll see you guys in court. So on the way out at the guard gate, there's all three of the guards are standing up looking at me like, is your business finished here, Mr. Hamilton? <laughs> it's all kind of a setup. Mm -hmm. So it ended up being a, a million dollar lawsuit. Uh, we had an insurance for, our company had insurance for a lawsuit, so it was paid by that, but we had to settle out of court. Millions won. We had to pay him $400,000 for copyright infringement, and I lost the trademark. Wow. So that was and started in 1978 and ended in 1992. So based on what you paid him out, you lost money yeah. in the end. Um, what did he ever do with the trademark? He sold it to a company in Italy. The Italians called me and they said, Mr. Hamilton, would you like to be a part of the bear? Team and I said, yeah, sure. If you guys want to pay me mm, thirty-five hundred dollars a month, I'll work for you guys. I never heard from them again. Yeah. So, man, what a bummer. Yeah, it was. You know, you I've been over and, and got sh and got shafted, but um, once again, I saw who my friends were. It was a big eye opener for yeah. me and, and how you really got to protect yourself. And so when I got a patent to do my, my, the fabric rails that I do on my surfboards, I got a design and a utility patent on that. I hired a, a lawyer for $6,000 to do that. And I crossed all my T's and dotted all my I's. Right. Because I, I learned from that event. So in that way, I mean, I got spanked and I lost a lot. But in the, by the same token, if you don't learn from a situation like that, you're really stupid, you know. So, so the misstep there, though, was trusting that Milius, I mean, bringing him in on the deal, was you were trusting him to go sort out where that... I trusted my relationship with John because we had a relationship. Yeah. I could call him. I could talk to him. He, when when there was movies to be made, I was his chauffeur in, in Flight of the Intruder. I drove him around this island in a, in a giant stretch limo. Right. I was his friend, you right. know. I had no idea that he would backdoor me like that. Right. It was based on trust. Friendship based on trust in business, especially in Hollywood. Oh no. Right. Not a good thing. I mean, that was a lot of money on the line. Yeah. It'll corrupt people. That's wild. Um, 
back to board building, you're, we're sitting in your shaping bay right now. You're still building, building boards on Kauai. Um, you did a line of boards with Surf Tech. I did. How do you feel about that in hindsight? Was that a good move? Was it a bad move? It was... Uh... Was it good or bad? Well, for me, it was a positive move in the sense that I got my 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 boards, my surfboards, out in the world on a worldwide basis. People knew me in Australia. They knew me in Europe. They knew me all over the world. For one, for two, these are the best designs that I could come up with at the time. So people like them. So that gave me access to this other world of business. Um, for three. We found out how indestructible epoxy surfboards were. That was, in a way, in the world of planned obsolescence, regular surfboards break. Regular surfboards have get dense. Regular boards are susceptible to the heat and the sun. Epoxy boards are re very resilient. They last. So the shelf life of a epoxy board lasts a lot longer. That means they're not being turned over all the time like regular surfboards are. So in that sense, we all shot ourselves in the foot, but it was a, um, you know, it was a technology that was on its way and it now is, is part of our business. When SurfTech was doing it, basically epoxy was still a new event, a new technology within surfing. Right. So, and I think, it, it, you know, it, it's a double-edged sword. I think there was a lot of good aspects about it. And not so, you know, some negative stuff too. But by and large, I mean, you know, we're on this, we're on, we're on this in this locomotive that is going places, and nothing's going to stop for it. It's all about change. You look out the window. Nature's changing. Everything's changing. You know, every day, and you can't do anything about that. You have to accept it, and you have to deal with it. And you have to to live with it and survive within the framework of that. And if you don't. Well, you're going to just get blown off the tracks. See you yeah. later, pal. You know? Yeah. Um, how and when did you, how, when, and why did you decide to start growing your own balsa? Um, I started growing my own balsa in 1998, primarily because I was looking for a board that was biodegradable. I'd heard about some research in, in vegetable-based epoxies. Um, and I already knew that there was fabrics made out of hemp. I was thinking if I could make a completely eco-friendly surfboard that was biodegradable that you could throw in the earth and plants could grow out of it, that would be a really good thing. That's nothing but 100% positive for humanity, right? I'm starting to think in green terms, you know. Um, I've already been, you know, I, I'm kind of an activist in a lot of different ways. When uh, in 1974, when the Land Use Commission came here, they were going to um, redesignate certain areas from agriculture into urban and change basically the footprint of thousands of acres. So I formed a uh, committee called Malama Hanlei, which was basically save Hanlei from, from asphalt and from buildings and from, you know, you know, the people that come in, they have, they want to come and develop someplace. They say it's going to provide jobs for everybody. 
but it does a lot more things than that. And they were looking at prime agricultural land, like from the lighthouse to Kaliwai. All that property in there was, was owned by two corporations from Las Vegas. And they wanted to put two giant hotels over there. And I went, once you put asphalt over good ground, you can't grow out of it again. It's just common sense, you know. I said, people have to understand that when they do permanent shit like that to the earth, it can't return back to its normal condition. I said, the best part of having agri agricultural land is you can grow stuff on it. Hello? Nobody kind of, nobody knew about this, uh, this boundary review um, that happens every five years in Hawaii. Nobody's, you know, it's a small thing in the paper. So it wasn't really publicly made. So basically the guys that own these corporations could have had a slam dunk. And I went and formed this corporation and I blew the whistle on these guys. And it changed zoning laws in Hawaii forever because what happened was all this agriculture, even across from Princeville, all they wanted to put in a whole other Princeville up above where all those private homes are up there. What happened was these people that were holding all these thousands of acres, they couldn't do anything with it. And this very clever lawyer figured out how to subdivide um, agricultural land into smaller parcels that was recognized by the bank as being lendable. And they came up with a whole new land valuation called CPR, property, uh, condominium property regime. Basically the same laws as condominium property owners, but done with raw land. So now you could take a 30 parcel, 30 acre parcel, divide it five ways, I could go in and buy a parcel for, for a grand. I did this a couple of times. A five acre parcel, uh, a 20 acre parcel divided four ways. I went and bought five acres for $143,000. Guess what, I could do that. A lot of people could do that. Now, in, on, this, in, on this island, there are, are more, um, there are more uh, food fairs every week than any other island because of these laws. Farmer's markets. Farmer's markets. Yeah. Because the land was kept in agriculture. And it was because of my, um, the, the committee that I formed and also the committee that Joanne Yukimura formed in Poipu. It's the same, we were fighting the same battle and in this case, we actually did good. Well, I, I'd be curious to know what the success was of that campaign because a lot of people try to get active, politically active and they fail, they run up against politicians or corrupt politicians or big money, whoever, corporations backing those things, and uh, they don't succeed. Well, this one guy, he came to me, he goes, he goes, Bill, I want to help you with your committee. I go, I go, what do you do? He goes, he says, I want to use this as a political springboard. I said, well, what's your name? He goes, Jeremy Harris. Jeremy Harris was the mayor of Honolulu, right? So he actually helped me in my committee. Amazing. Yeah, so, but yeah, you're right. I mean, sometimes the, the money and the graph behind that buys politicians. Um, I think that the timing of everything that I was involved in was just at the right time. Yeah. Because, uh, first of all, it hit them it hit them in a way that they, they, weren't, they weren't aware of in the, in the sense that their timing, they thought their timing was good, but they didn't know there was going to be public awareness about it. Right. So we let the whole island know 
that there was a five-year boundary review up for review at the convention center on such and such a date, and we filled that convention center. And I remember getting up in front of 650 people saying, telling you exactly what I told you about agricultural land being agricultural land. And we did a good job. I interviewed Dustin Barca the other day, who's tried to be politically yeah. active with a bunch of stuff. Some have been successful, others not. Um, it Hearing his story makes me feel pretty pessimistic about politics being the solution for a lot of these things. It feels like politics is so corrupt. And maybe you will solve um, some of the environmental issues, but it might not be through politics. It might be through other methods, technology, you know, stuff like that. Do you feel optimistic about the future of Kauai? Um, is this a place you would want your grandkids and your great-grandkids to be raised? I think things are, there's a lot more opportunity available to young people here than there has been. Um, I think that there's better schooling, and I think that there's a, a higher quality of education here only because there's a lot of wealthy families that have moved here. I think we have 25 billionaires living on this island right now. Crazy. And that, um, and I think with that as a social basis, you know, that's one thing, but over time I see Koi getting, the problem with the Kauai that I don't like so much is that our infrastructure wasn't prepared for tourism whatsoever, you know. When Maui was being built, they had a very clever mayor over there by the name of Hannibal Trevaris, and he mandated that every person who wanted to develop hotel property would also put in all the plumbing and all the electricity and all the roads to that particular parcel. At the state and the county levels would have nothing to do with it. But they would become county property once they did it. Genius. And genius. And that's how Maui has been able to stay, sustain growth. And of course, Maui has a lot more roads and a lot more interior land that they use there than our land. We just have this single road all around the island. Which is full of potholes, by the way. Yeah. Oh, you should have seen when I came here in 1966. You couldn't drive more than. I don't think they'd fixed the road since the Depression. I swear, it, you couldn't go over 15 miles an hour really? from Lihue to Hanle. It took nearly two hours. To get yeah. Crazy. Well, they have, you would think with the billionaires on island, they have the tax revenue to fix that sort of a thing. Well, maybe, you know, all they have to do is sing a song. It's like we're tired of the road. Yeah. And pitch in a few million and things get done, you know. True. That's how that... that you know, there's a sliding scale with that. It's called money sliding across the table. Yeah. I don't know how all that works. And, you know, Joanne Yurkimura asked me to be, if I wanted to be a mayor, if I'd run for mayor, she would support me. I, went, I said, Joanne, I am way too selfish to be a mayor. I can't, I'm not a public, I'm not a public servant whatsoever. I am a surfer and I'm very selfish. Yeah. <laughs> um, how old are you? I'm 71 today. Happy birthday. No. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, what? Considering what's going on, I'm, I'm 71 today. I don't know about tomorrow. Gotcha, but. gotcha, gotcha. It's like, wow, that's generous of you to sit for all this time on your birthday to chat. Um, so I want to ask you about maintaining health and well-being and surfing into your 70s. You're still out there. Yeah, I just got out of the water, actually. Surf on a was like six foot and really good. And... People see me stand up paddle, 
a lot now, and, and I mustn't be defined by the equipment that I ride, quoting Brian Kalana. But uh, I have a left knee issue. I, I don't need a knee replacement, but I need some, some new collagen in there. And so I can't pop up like I did before. So it becomes a kind of a painful event. So I started standing up about six years ago. And I enjoy that. It gets me out in the water. And you know, the, I tell people that it's really important to, to, uh, to have the ability to run and to jump. Because when the shit hits the fan and you need to save your ass, those are the two components that you use, is running and jumping. And if you can't do that, then you're part of a disaster. And I put myself in those conditions all the time. So I'm about ready for another shot in my knee because I haven't been able to jump a lot lately. But it's so important to become keep your body strong and flexible and healthy, considering that we have this new virus on our hands, you know. Um, so what do you do to keep strong and healthy? Um, I, I, um, I breathe deeper. I eat um, one meal a day and mostly vegetables now. I drink a lot of water um, and I eat a lot of vitamins. I supplement my whatever I'm missing in my diet with a lot of vitamins. When is your I eat a lot of yogurt. I eat a lot of um, you know sauerkraut and kimchi and stuff like that for my pickled my stomach for my, you know, the millions of organisms in my stomach. And what um, when is your one meal a day? Depends on when I'm hungry. This is unusual to me. I've not heard this diet strategy. Actually, if you read more about diet, they'll, the dietitians will tell you that you should at least fast once a week. Fasting is really good for your body. It rest gives you rest. So one meal a day, what's happened with me at seven years of age is that I don't, uh, my metabolism, metabolism has slowed down as much. I don't have, I don't, run through my life now. I'm more like stride through my life and I'm not burning as much calories. And I also decided that my body will tell me what I need because my body knows, the cells of my body know what I need. Sometimes I haven't drank milk for a long time because I'm an asthmatic, but I drink almond milk. You eat yogurt, you said. I like oat yogurt from, from what's going on in my stomach. Probiotic. Yeah, I eat lots of fruit. I enjoy fruit. But, you know, um, but you get energy from activity, you know. When you sit too much, you lose your energy. Yeah. You gotta. You have this blood supply and oxygen supply in your body that gives you life, and you got to use that. Yeah. And if you don't use it, you're actually abusing it, you know. Do you eat red meat? No, very rarely. Okay. Once in a while. If I feel like my energy is low or if, I, if I'm doing something really demanding, I'll have a big steak. But, you know, I'm not, like, denying myself religiously things that, that are either good or bad for my body. If I want to eat bread, I'll eat bread. If I want to eat a sausage, I'll eat a sausage. But do I do it all the time? No. The thing is, it's about the diversity and how much you do it. Uh, do you avoid sugar? I try to. Okay. It's hard to avoid in our society. Sure. But um, 
I mean, I, I eat a lot of good sugar. I like uh, carrot juice and I love grapes. And uh, sometimes I'll just eat grapes for my meal, you know. So natural sugars yeah. and fruit. What about, uh, back to the one meal a day thing, is this, you're I saying you sit- kind of from Bruce Brown, I mean, Bud Brown, who was at 75 years of age, swimming in 15-foot sunset with a real heavy camera, taking photos, and uh, really in a real demanding, taxing physical situation, and coming out and still having lots of energy. And he'd come by the house every evening at our house. We lived at Pipeline. And, and Joanne would make him a big, giant, heaping meal of vegetables, broccoli, and uh, squash, and salads, and all this stuff. And that's the one meal that it, he ate a day. And he'd eat it in the evening. Refueling after a huge yeah, athletic. Yeah, and he was, he was pretty much, if you looked at his physique, he was skin and bones. He, he had no excess fat, or he, he wasn't heavy with muscle. But, you know, I mean, here's a guy that's bungee jumping off at bridges at 85 years of age. I mean, the guy was a phenomenal example of, of how you treat your body. And so there's some, you know, and I just saw something on Netflix about how they did a study with four football players. They gave them burritos. Three guys had burritos with with only greens in it, and the other guy had rice with chicken in it. And then they took their blood serum right after they ate. The blood serum of all the plant eaters was as clear as a bell. The meat eater, the serum was all cloudy. It was just an instantaneous, instantaneous. That's what your body, instantaneous, assimilates this food and, you know, distributes amongst all the organs and stuff. But the blood is what does all the work. Right. So the blood blood and oxygen is really important. Yeah. Um, and I think that the more blood and oxygen that you have flowing to all your extremities, the better off you are. And by doing that, you have to do lots of different exercises, you know. You're I don't do as much as I, I should. I should be riding a bike more now. Uh, in fact, I've been looking at my bike going got to repaint this puppy and get on the road, you know. But You were talking about breathing deeply. Is that a meditative practice or is there... Just being conscious of breathing. Okay. Every day when you're driving or when you're concentrating on something. It's like check yourself out. Check yourself out someday when you're doing something. How are you breathing? You'll see pretty shallow, hmm. you know. But if you use, like I'm an asthmatic. I was trained to use my lungs, which exist in my, in, in my core. My stomach, if I lay on the ground, if I put an uh, apple in my stomach, the apple should rise up in the air with a whole belly full of air. And then everything else should rise after that. And then when I let my air out, my air out, my, the air coming in comes into my nose, the air going out goes out of my mouth. My mouth is exhaust. You don't breathe through your mouth. You breathe through your nose. So it's all... That balance is really important. I don't always breathe deep. I'm constantly trying to consciously be more aware of when I breathe, especially when I drive, because then I can be really conscious. So I'll do that exercise as I drive. Gotcha. I got so much energy after I do that. It's yeah. amazing. Fuels your body. What uh, What's your policy with alcohol? I like alcohol, but I don't drink it as much as I did. Uh, I like, you know, because I'm Scott, I'm, I got a lot of, I'm probably 85% Scott. I like, I used to drink a lot of scotch. 
it doesn't seem to really affect me in in a way like do I like my radically hungover? It didn't. I didn't seem to get those effects. But it, it's not good for you, you know. I like beer. I drink beer um, sometimes once a day, sometimes once in three days, sometimes not for weeks. Just depends. Like if I got a big workload here, or if I'm sanding and I'm really dusty and I'm hot, or especially if I'm working with Carol, Kelly Franklin, my wood partner, and we're milling wood, cutting trees and stuff like that. I love to have a beer. It's so good. Yeah. I'm not going to deny things that I like. And I, it's like, you know, it's like the principle of less is more and not, not overindulging in anything. That's the problem. When people overindulge in one particular thing, that's when you're going to find body problems, health yeah. problems. Imbalance. Imbalance. What's your policy with marijuana? Well, I used to smoke. I grew it commercially for about 25 years. Um, I haven't smoked weed for, I don't know, 10 or 12 years. Why not? Um, because it um, changes my normal, natural focus into a, more of a different kind of a mental frame that is very creative, but it loses, I lose focus. If I if smoked a joint, I'd usually have four or five projects going at one time and none of them got finished. So I find that it kind of changes my focus a little bit. Did it take you a while to figure that out or was that creative focus energy beneficial at the time? Um, when I was younger, well, I started smoking weed when I was in high school, right? And what we smoked, it was Mexican leaf. It wasn't, didn't have any pot THC potency at all. And then when I went to France in 1968, I didn't have any weed to smoke, but I bought some Moroccan keef, which is basically like leaf and, and from Morocco. And that was very, very pleasant high, but it wasn't strong at all. So when I get back to Hawaii, in you know late 68 they have discovered what they call buds which has a high content of THC in it. I smoked one of those things and all of a sudden my pleasant highs I was having became more of like an electrical event and really like distorting and I didn't like it so I started I started backing away from it then you know when you were talking about psychedelics earlier when you look back at that was it a net gain or a net loss utilizing psychedelics? Oh, it was a net gain for me because I, fortunately, I took acid in the late 60s when it was still pure. It was coming out of the labs in San Francisco, the Osley Laboratories, coming in vial form, really hard to find. People that had it had been involved in the drug at a, at a lab level, had been tested. So it was really pure and it was really clean. So. If you had a trip on it, it was not a bad. There was, it, you know, it was very distorted and it was very psychedelic and very, the hallucination of it was very extreme, but it wasn't like there was some weird drug in there that was pulling you sideways that the later acids did because they were mixed with other pollutants that were impure, which caused some really bad side effects. So I had, I had probably 10 really very, extremely bordering on spiritual kind of highs that I will forever remember and and uh, that tattooed my brain forever. What was you the know? benefit of those? The benefit was I had a I had a uh, I was 
I was going to Trestles in the morning, 5.30 morning. I was just coming on to this house. I was going surfing. And I heard this squawking noise. And there was this long-necked bird laying on the ground that it was must have been looking for an insect and got caught on a vine. And it was like choking and it was panicking. And I went up to the bird and I went, I looked at the bird and I went, it's okay. Don't worry about a thing. There was absolutely no fear in me. There was no, no presence of fear. And the bird just totally relaxed, went limp. And I picked the, the vine up and I unwrapped its neck and pulled him out. And his head was in my hand, his lit, warm neck, and I was looking in his eyes. And I, I had a thought. I went, oh, that beak looks like it could do some damage. And as soon as I had that thought, that bird looked at me and went, Wah! split like that. And I went, that's all it took was one thought. That's what I learned. It was like your thought was actually it, coming into fruition yeah. and becoming an action. Yeah, it became, it became a vibration. It became a vibration, a knowledgeable vibration to something in nature. And that was, so that that was very, very finite. We hear about this when people talk about psychedelics, um, an interconnectivity of all things. And that we're all kind of made up of the same matter, and that your energy is what thoughts can become. Well, what, what happens when you take LSD is that it it sensitizes everything into a molecular scale. So you see the energy in everything. You see a vibrating energy in everything, and it's all different kinds of energy. It's not like drywall has a different energy than surfboard energy. It's different. It's defined, um, and it. And it's a, we live in a world of vibrating atoms and electrons. You know, if, you, if we had the awareness of what we do, we do on acid, I think maybe we'd probably go about living a little differently. For sure. Yeah. Um, so have you been able to maintain that awareness that you just explained to me? Were you able to carry that with you through your life and act differently and behave according to knowing that we're all interconnected in that way? Or do you forget it? Um, um, no, the thing is, is that the, the, I've had a couple of different experiences like that. Those experiences stay with you forever. They're, they're like little um, benchmarks in your brain, you know, and you can apply them. It's like if I'm, if I'm next to somebody who was really aggressive, I become very calm, you know. It's like I can become very calm. I used to always... Um, I, I had a friend in Japan who was a, she had a, she had kinesthesis, she had the ability to bend solid objects. She could take a, a spoon that was made out of stainless steel and literally bend it with her thoughts, you know. Legitimately? Legitimately, yeah. I mean, you I take these spoons, I couldn't bend these spoons with my thumb. She'd, she'd rub the stem right below the, she'd rub the stem and I don't know what she did with her mind, but the thing would just flop over. Like you witnessed I, it. I witnessed this. My friend, George Fujisawa's wife, Kyle. That's wild. Well, we have a lot of capabilities. Our minds have a lot of capabilities. And I think it's just how you, there's a composition that we need to learn. It's like the composition when you make music, there's a composition to being able to control material events. You know, I think that probably could have happened back in the days of the of Egypt when they're putting things like that 
those heavy objects together. I think that there were some mind bending skills there, you know. Yeah, because we haven't figured out, yeah. we haven't been able to reverse engineer for how that happened physically. Yeah. So, a um, couple of closing questions: Do you ride other shape other shapers surfboards? I, funny thing, I I um, I don't have it in here right now, but um, um, I was getting my boards glassed in a place called uh, in uh, Moonlight uh, Glassing in Encinitas. Um, and all the guys that worked in that factory were riding five-fin bonzers. I go, what's the big deal about these five-fin bonzers? They go, have you ever ridden one? I go, no, I've never ridden one. And uh, uh, one of the guys said, well, you know that Malcolm has used one of your longboards as a template on making some of his longboards. I go, really? Malcolm has? I go, so I called Malcolm up. I go, Malcolm, I said, since you've been using my template for longboards, I want you to make me an eight-foot Bonzer for Hanley. This is in 1992, right? Okay, this is the only second time. The first time I ever asked a shaper to make me a board was Mike Diffenderfer and Dick Brewer at the same time. And I said, would you guys make me a board? And this is, I already had three years of shaping under my belt, but I felt like I needed to learn more. So I had Dick, uh, Mike make me a board and I got to watch him and I had Dick make me a board and I got to watch him. Oh, and Larry McElhaney too made me a beautiful board. But, uh, and then, and then Duncan, and then Duncan Campbell's boards changed my whole perspective, perspective of how I make boards now. I mean, when I was writing shorter equipment, all my boards were five-fin boards and then guys were ordering boards for me. They wouldn't order one board, they'd order three boards because that, for a wave like Hanlei that's real long like that, that's what you need a bonzer for. You need something that has some punch and some exchange, you know. So, yes, I have had other shapers. I mean, it helps expand your, you know, your repertoire yeah. and your... Yeah, that, well, I mean, all, all those experiences of having those boards made for me helped me a lot. But I'd have to say Duncan's was a, a big event, you know. What's the best, who is the best surfing that you've ever seen at Hanalei? Oh, um, Joy Cabell was really good. Jimmy, Jimmy Lucas, Titus Kinemaka, uh, Terry Chen's a great, great, great big wave rider out there. Um, James Jones used to come over and surf. I never got to see him surf there, but there's a handful of guys that surf really well out there. Now the young bucks are coming on. Nobody names the Young Bucks whenever I ask them that question. They say the same guys that you just said. Yeah, well, the Young Bucks, are they're, they're the sons of the people we just named. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> uh, final question is, what was the last surfboard that you rode? That one right there, that 98. I rode it two weeks ago at Hanalei. What is it exactly? Explain a, it for the listeners. It's a, it's a 98. I call it a modern classic. It's got, um, it has about an eight inch square tail that I put a channel through the bottom on the, on the, on the deck to funnel the water, this right here. Okay. Um, and then it has kind of what I call, referred to as a trimming concave. So when you get up to the concave, it gets faster rather than slows the board down. I made it more like a, a board that I could ride all over the place, not just if you're riding a board that you want as a nose rider, 
you specifically have to make things adjustments on the board for it to ride the nose right well right and if it rides the nose well it's not going to turn really well and it's not going to paddle you really well and be very fast but when you get on the nose you're going to stand on there like a sidewalk but this board is kind of an overall event i made it a little bit wider than my other boards because i have a hard time getting up really quickly yeah so it, it's provided a flat platform that's giving me more timing what's the fin setup that's a single cutaway fin nice it kind of got a rolled V bottom, a soft bottom on it. Uh, no real hard edges on this one. Very flowing board, very loose. Gotcha. Awesome. Well, Billy, this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you for taking so much time. Well, thank you for coming, David. Thanks for, thanks for your interest. Thrilled for the opportunity. And thanks for the audience for listening. Gladly. Appreciate <laughs> it. an absolute joy that was thank you billy hamilton terry chung luke evslin jeff hackman dustin barka mark papasau sausen max Medeiros, lance ebert and bronson lovell all for participating in this Kauai series of episodes and a special thanks to jimmy rodello and josh hall san diego board builder josh hall for facilitating these interviews and also for vouching for me and then another huge thanks to Jamie Dilberg of the Aloha Exchange for doing the same and for hosting me while I was on island and also being a consummate tour guide. None of this would have been possible without Jamie Dilberg of the Aloha Exchange. And the good news is the Aloha Exchange is reopened for business post-COVID lockdown. So you can visit their stores in Kalaheo or Kilauea or of course at thealohaexchange.org. And thank you to you, of course, listeners, for uh, chiming in, engaging on social media at Surf Splendor, sharing this show with friends. It's all been really rewarding, and we've got lots more to come. So I hope that you're healthy, employed, and well as we slowly emerge from lockdown. I'll be back with an all-new episode of Surf Splendor next Wednesday. But until then, this is David Scales, hoping that you're out of the house at the bare minimum, absorbing some sunlight. And uh, even better, getting back into the ocean, sharing some waves, and of course, shredding on. Surf Splendor.